One of the things that I like to do when I have the opportunity to preach is to tackle one of the New Testament texts. If I can get that the right way, there we go. One of the New Testament texts that helps us as a congregation to think about our pastor and how to faithfully support him as a church. And no, he actually didn't ask me or pay me to do that. I I do it of my own accord. I've tried to do this several times uh, in churches where I have not been a pastor but yet have had the opportunity to preach, whether one of the churches that I've been a member of or a church that I visited. Because as you can imagine, it's often maybe just a little bit awkward for a pastor to preach about himself. So I wanted to take the opportunity today and look in a passage that would give us um, uh, a platform to stand on to talk about how we can faithfully support our pastor. And if you think about it, this is just the sort of thing that the New Testament writers wrote about. Uh, Paul said, let the one who is taught in the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The writer to Hebrews tells us, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's what I want to give us opportunity to do today, to esteem our shepherd very highly in love because of his work as we talk about a passage together. Our own pastor is not simply one of many faithful men who minister in this present day, although he is that. He's part of an honorable body of men who for nearly 2,000 years have served the church by preaching the word and praying for the flock and modeling godliness and equipping the saints. And in a way, the lineage goes back even further to those faithful spiritual leaders of God's people in the Old Testament who taught them to love God and his word, prayed on their behalf, confronted sin, and called them to holiness and obedience. And God has always called for his people to consider how they should faithfully support those whom God has placed over them as shepherds. So we'll have an opportunity to do that today. My applicational aim is to help us to remember how we can encourage our shepherd in the good work to which he has been called. The pastor-oriented passage that we'll be looking at is in 1 Timothy. We'll be pulling in other scripture, but 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 will be our center of gravity today. The saying is trustworthy, Paul writes. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, before we get into the three points of the sermon, we have to take care of something else first. The title of the sermon is Good Work. And if you, like me, grew up using the King James Version, you may remember that it uses that phrase, good work, in our text, where the ESV uses noble task. The King James Version reads, If a man desire the office of a bishop, 
he desireth a good work. I am going to use the translation good work instead of noble task in our text today. Both translations are legitimate, but I think that we are going to be better served when we say a good work. And why is that? The reason is simple. The notion of works, and especially good works, is vital to what Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter. When we read noble task, we're unlikely to make the connection between the office of overseer in this verse and other places in the letter where Paul speaks about good works. And because the idea of good works is so important in understanding Paul here in this passage, we need to step back and we're going to get a big picture of how Paul thinks of good works. We'll do that and then we'll circle back to our text this morning. So Paul and good works. It's possible that some of us think of good works in sort of a negative way. Maybe you grew up like I did with the words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 ringing in your ears. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's not hard to understand how we might come to think faith good, works bad, because of the way human works are contrasted with divine action in these verses. Perhaps our inner Martin Luther rises up and says, I don't know about that. But that would be to misunderstand the way Scripture talks about good works. It is absolutely true that the basis of our salvation is emphatically not works. We do not earn God's favor by engaging in good works. But we might be getting the cart before the horse here. We should pause and ask, what are good works? I like how one commentator put it. Good works are a way of characterizing the whole of the Christian life as a work of God's grace with visible results. The fruit produced by genuine faith. It is the outward evidence of imitating Christ, who himself went about doing good. Acts 10.38 We mentioned Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but it's important to continue at least one verse farther in that passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in Titus 3, 5, it's not by works done by us in righteousness that God saved us. But earlier in the letter, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, the defiled and unbelieving deny God by their works, and they are unfit for any good work. In contrast, Titus 2, verse 7, Titus is to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. And at the end of chapter 2, verse 14, we find that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then just after that, chapter 3 and verse 1, Titus is to remind those in the church to be ready for every good work. So clearly Paul has a lot of positive things to say about the place of good works in our lives. And we see the same thing as we circle back around to 1 Timothy. Not too far before today's text, Paul addresses women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, teaching that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, 
not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And after today's text, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, the sort of widow that Paul says could be supported by the church is the one who has a reputation for good works and has devoted herself to every good work. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, wealthy believers are to be rich in good works. So even though Paul would argue strenuously that our works are not going to earn God's favor. He would argue with equal vigor that good works are essential and expected in a believer's life, and indeed a natural result of our life in Christ. The sort of works that we do reflect the sort of heart that we have. If we are Christ's and he is making us new, He is also making us zealous for and examples of good works. He's calling us to be prepared for every good work, and he has prepared good works for us to walk in. Given all of that, I don't think it's an accident when Paul speaks in our text today, 1 Timothy 3.1, of aspiring to the office of overseer in terms of desiring a good work. When the Lord puts in a man's heart to aspire to and desire that office for the glory of God and the good of others, that man is aspiring to and desiring a good work. And faithfully executing the responsibilities of that office, as our own pastor does, is engaging in a good work. As we look in the first part of 1 Timothy 3, we'll touch on three points and we'll make application of each as to how we can glorify God by faithfully supporting our shepherd. First, in spite of the challenges of ministry, being an overseer is a good work. You'll notice as Paul begins chapter 3, he does so in a pretty formal way. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Paul reaches for that same trustworthy saying line in two other places in the letter and once in 2 Timothy and once in Titus. And each time he does it to highlight the truth and the importance of the point he's making. He's putting emphasis on it. It may be that he's also signaling that he's quoting or adapting a saying that people were familiar with, but he is at least putting emphasis on what he's saying. And I imagine that we've all done that sort of thing as well. We might say to our kids, now you pay attention. Go clean your room. Jesus did this every time. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, and then said what he was going to say. And that's the sort of thing Paul is doing here. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. But why? Why was it that Paul felt the need to hammer this particular point home? will be helped by understanding the point of emphasis that he's making here, what he's getting at. The ESV translation is nice and smooth, but Paul laid out what he said in such a way as to emphasize both the office of the overseer and its nature as a good work. We might put it into English this way to reflect that emphasis. If the office of overseer is what someone aspires to, it is a good work that he is desiring. The focus of this particular verse is less on the person, that comes later, and more on the connection between being an overseer and the good works that believers are called to. But again, why? 
Why does Paul deploy that this way here? What's going on? And that's where we have to get into some context. Why does Paul feel that he needs to emphasize that being an overseer is a good work, something to desire and aspire to? This letter was written to Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, and through Timothy to the church at Ephesus. And it was a big city, Ephesus was. In our country, when we think about big cities, we think about New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. But back in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, when they thought about big cities, they thought Rome, Alexander, Alexandria, Ephesus. And Paul wrote this letter to Timothy and the Ephesian church roughly a decade after he spent three years establishing that church. And a lot had happened in that decade. Paul himself had predicted to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that after he left Ephesus, he said, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And his prediction came true, and that is what brought Paul to write this letter to Timothy. He says as much right as he begins the letter. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There were teachers in the church who were teaching disruptive and deviant doctrine, and at least some of them appeared to have been in leadership positions, and they needed to be dealt with. And that was what Paul was writing to Timothy about. They had brought shame and dishonor to the office of overseer with their shenanigans while they were in the office. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, Paul speaks of having to place under church discipline Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he says had made shipwreck of their faith. And the fact that Paul names them probably means that these men were prominent among the false teachers. Later in the letter, chapter 5, verse 20, Paul lays down instructions for elders who persist in sin. I don't think it was just theoretical. I think there were probably concrete people he had in mind. And at other places in the letter, we can see how the false teachers had been nothing but trouble for the church, forbidding marriage and commanding abstinence from certain foods and otherwise leading people astray. Paul's mission work that had established this church and the testimony of the church itself was being placed in jeopardy. One of the things that was needed was faithful men who would lay out the healthy teaching of the gospel and who would model it in their own lives. At the same time, you might say that the situation provided a disincentive for faithful men to take on the office of overseer in Ephesus. There were messes to clean up. There was more confrontation with the false teachers that needed to happen. Perhaps the situation had caused some in the church to become distrustful of those in leadership and take a dim view of the pastoral office. It was a situation where the office of overseer in that particular church was probably not looking all that attractive. But in the face of those challenges, Paul insists that being an overseer is still a good work. The failure of an office holder does not negate the importance or necessity of the office, much less Christ's church. In spite of challenges in the ministry, aspiring to the office of overseer is still to desire a good work. So here, by way of application, I'll tie in our relationship with our own pastor. Even when you have a good church, and not one that is ripped up by false teaching like the church at Ephesus was, being a shepherd is not an easy job. 
I'm not saying this because I'm privy to any behind-the-scenes problems at our church. I'm not. But in any church, there's more happening that meets the eye. And what I'm after here is that we should pray for our pastor as he handles the challenges that every ministry faces sooner or later, and often without warning, and often from more than one direction. And we should let him know that we are praying for him and ask him how we can better do so. I never know how much weight to put on Barna polling. But back in 2021, when they asked the question in one of their polls to pastors, have you given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year? 38% of pastors responding said yes. I am not at all trying to be alarmist, but we should be realistic about what pastors face. It is a challenging work. And it is always good for us to show our love and support in both tangible and intangible ways so as to offset the challenges and the potential discouragement that the ministry brings. It doesn't have to be something heavy-duty. It can be a note. It can be a text. It can be a conversation. But all of those things can be a real encouragement at just the right time, a reminder that God is still on the throne and that being an overseer is a good work and a high calling. So in spite of challenges in the ministry, being an overseer is a good work. As well, in modeling a faithful life for believers, being an overseer is a good work. Now, when Paul uses the word good in speaking of the good work in which the overseer is involved, he uses a word which here not only indicates something intrinsically good, but also observably good. Good that is recognizable as such by others. It is visible good, outwardly attractive good, good put on display. The sort of good works Jesus spoke of when he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The idea that being an overseer is a good work then involves the idea that his life is on display for others. And one direction we need to take that idea of goodness on display is that the overseer is meant to be a model for the congregation. In other places, Scripture makes explicit that the role of spiritual leaders involves modeling godliness for the flock. Later on in 1 Timothy, Timothy is told, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We saw earlier that Titus was called to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So in our passage, Paul says that if it is the office of an overseer that a man aspires to, it is a good work that he desires, well and good. But he goes on to draw a lengthy conclusion from this point. Someone aspiring to be an overseer desires a good work, and therefore he must be above reproach. And Paul goes on over the next six verses to detail what that looks like. Well, yes, but that's for the overseer, you might say. But you know, as much as we might like to dichotomize between pastor and people, between clergy and laity, the things Paul lays out for pastoral qualifications are pretty much things that every Christian should aspire to and are told to do so. Is an overseer to be a one-woman man? faithful to his wife. Elsewhere, Christians are told to love their wives and wives to love their husbands. Faithful widows were to have been one-man women, faithful to their husbands. 
Is an overseer to be self-controlled? Yes. No less should others in the church. Is an overseer to be respectable? Christian women in particular were called to this earlier in the letter, and surely all Christian men should be as well. Is an overseer to be hospitable? So are all believers. Is the overseer to be able to teach? At some level, every believer is to grow to be a teacher. Is the overseer not to be a drunkard? Paul told all the Ephesians earlier, do not get drunk with wine. Is the overseer not to be violent but gentle? It's the same for all believers. The overseer is not to love money, but neither is any believer. The overseer is to manage his own household well, and surely this should be true for Christian men and women, both, each in their own way. The point is that the overseer is simply being portrayed here as a mature Christian engaged in a high-visibility good work, but one that models Christianity for the flock who should follow his lead as he follows Christ. Our passage here is helpful and aspirational for all believers and not just useful for pastoral search committees. And since even saying the phrase pastoral search committee from the pulpit is how rumors get started, I'll emphasize that there is nothing like that currently going on at Gateway, nor on the horizon, to the best of my knowledge. So by way of application, first, pray for your pastor that he will continue to grow in grace and model a faithful Christian walk as he does. Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him. The author of Hebrews asked believers to pray for him. And every faithful pastor wants and needs the prayers of his people to live and minister wisely and well. But as a second point of application, we must also recognize that the Scripture tells us to follow the example of our spiritual leaders, and we should do so. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, Hebrews says. So we pray that the Lord will bring all of us to greater faithfulness. But more than that, where we are able, we should be looking for ways ourselves to come alongside our shepherd and faithfully minister to others as we are able, following his model, not only in virtue, but also in good works. Not just pray for him as he ministers, but come alongside him and minister as well. And when I say minister, I don't only mean do stuff, as important as that may be, but also work with people. As much help as it is when the congregation willingly pitches in and does the million and one necessary tasks for services and meals and nurseries to run smoothly, do we look for opportunities to minister to others in the body in ways that will build them up in their faith? That's a profound way to come alongside our shepherd to minister, and it ties into the culture of discipleship that we want to encourage at Gateway. So in spite of challenges in the ministry, being an overseer is a good work. And in modeling a faithful life for believers, being an overseer is a good work. And finally, in showing Christ to a watching world, being an overseer is a good work. When you read Paul, you never want to forget that his epistles are missionary letters. Remember that most of the churches he wrote to were churches that he had planted in his own missionary work. And his cultivation of those churches through his letters was a continuation of that work. But beyond that, he longed to see his strategically planted churches reach others in their own regions. That missionary heartbeat comes out very strongly in 1 Timothy for the church at Ephesus. At several points in the letter, Paul shows his concern for the reputation that the church has before the world. 
And he's not thinking of reputation here in the sense of the world looking down on Christians for doing what Christians are called to do and for living according to Christian principles. That sort of thing, that looking down upon us, is only to be expected. No, he's thinking, when he thinks of reputation, of the church preaching one thing, but practicing another. And in our text, he has the overseer particularly in mind. In fact, the qualifications for being an overseer are clearly bracketed with the language of reputation. After we read in verse 1 that he who aspires to the office of overseer desires a good work, we read in verse 2, therefore, the overseer must be above reproach. Why must an overseer be above reproach? That is of such a character that accusations of wrongdoing don't stick to him. Because being an overseer is a good work. One whose goodness is publicly visible. Good works reflect the changed life of those in Christ and the preached message of the church. And this is especially true for the overseer, the one who is in many ways the face of the church for an outside world as most prominent representative. Therefore, not only to model mature Christianity for the church, but also for the sake of gospel mission to the world, the overseer must be above reproach. And this qualification in verse 2 is matched at the end of the passage in verse 7, where Paul is even more explicit, saying, Moreover, the overseer must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The false teachers have been teaching and living in ways contrary to the gospel, and they were not furthering God's program. In contrast, those who aspire to be overseers in the church were to be sound in teaching and blameless in reputation so that the gospel could move forward. Our application here is simple and parallel to the previous point. We pray for our pastor that the inevitable attacks of Satan against him will not be successful. And why do we do this? Certainly for the glory of God and his own well-being, but also so that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. So let me summarize in very basic terms. We were once dead in sin and unfit for any good work. But now that we are Christ's, our changed hearts result in changed lives. The fruit of those changed lives includes good works, visible results of God's work in us. Within the church, God has established the office and the role of overseers who are called to model good works to the church and the watching world in spite of the challenges involved in ministry. And all the church should be aspiring to do the same thing, praying for and loving and supporting their shepherds. So Gateway Baptist, I encourage you to right now, in your mind, plan one concrete thing that you can do to show love and support to your shepherd for God's glory. Please join me in prayer.